0: Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California, and today's discussion with the co-directors of the documentary, Free Su Lee. I'm John Zippero, the club's Vice President of Media and Editorial, and I'm Michelle's co-host for our program. At the Commonwealth Club, we're producing hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of issues, online as well as in-person programs. So head over to CommonwealthClub.org MMS for some more upcoming Michelle Miao shows, as well as video and audio of our past events. If you're watching live on YouTube, add your questions to the chat box and we'll work them into our discussion here today. Now, let's meet Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle.
1: Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us this afternoon for this program. In the early 1970s, a 20-year-old Korean-American named Cholso Lee was convicted of a Chinatown gang murder. Sentenced to life, he spent years fighting to survive until investigative journalist K.W. Lee took a special interest in his case. And it ignited an unprecedented social justice movement that would unite Pan-Asians, Asian-Americans, and inspire a new generation of activists. And so here to chat with us about a documentary that is being released Friday, tomorrow, here in the San Francisco Bay Area at the Roxy Theater, are the directors of Free chol Lee Lee. Julie Ha, and Eugene Yee. But before we get to the conversation, let's check out the trailer.
2: Well, I was not an
3: angel, i say. At the same time, I was not the devil. In San Francisco, Chinatown, there have been a dozen unsolved murders. Yip Yee Tak was gunned down execution style. Shot from behind by a Chinese man in his
1: early 20s.
2: Cho Lee had been involved in a gun going off in his hotel room two days earlier. That locked the police into Cho Lee.
1: Cho arrested for a Chinatown murder. People knew that the Korean didn't do it.
3: It didn't take a genius to find out what went wrong.
2: Chosu Lee is charged with murder. The
3: jury found Lee guilty and sentenced him to die in the gas chamber. It's hard from the campaign that I am on death row for crimes I did not commit. Horing a Korean Chinese, the judicial system continues to remain ignorant and insensitive.
2: You don't distinguish facial features of other racial groups. This case started in this kind of racism.
3: For too long a time, the has been on the subject of racial injustice in the history of America. I think this is time Asian community came forth and said, enough is enough. We came across a newspaper article and we both said, hey, it sounds like this man is innocent. That's really where the Chosu Lee movement started. The Chosu Lee movement had a life of its own. So
2: many, many people were involved.
0: We're continued and determined to
3: fight. Everything ends in balance. His was a case of an injustice. We're all unified around a common goal, which is to free Chosu Lee. It happened in America, but only in America we can right this wrong.
1: Julie, Eugene, thanks so much for being with us this afternoon and thank you for this film. You know, when I um, when I had heard about it, heard that the, the documentary was coming out, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was a little bit ashamed because I did not know the story of Chol Su Lee. And so we'll get in, you know, a little bit about why that is, but maybe a good place to start for both of you is to learn how each of you learned of Chol Su Lee yourself. Julie, would you like to kick us off?
2: sure um actually eugene and i um both learned about the case through k w lee the journalist in the film whose series of stories helped trigger this landmark movement um i actually met k w lee when i was 18 years old um doing an internship at a korean american newspaper he he started um and uh, i was yeah i was actually blown away by um k w uh, who is an incredible force of nature um and um and actually inspired to become a journalist um, at that time. And just to learn of, um, that there could be a case of a Korean immigrant who's wrongfully convicted, um, in our American criminal justice system, and that it could be the work of a journalist and an entire group of, um, people led by Asian Americans to win his freedom. Um, that's, that actually was quite mind blowing to learn as an 18 year old. And it really, um, helped shape the rest of my life. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, You know, in terms of though, like making this film, Eugene and I, um, even though we've known about it for a long time and Eugene met, um, KW in his, in his twenties, um, we didn't really think to make a film about this, um, until, you know, late 2015. And, um, Eugene is actually, um, he's always had one foot in journalism and one foot in, um, in film and video editing and, um, And we had worked together as journalists for a Korean American magazine called Corium Journal and really had always shared a passion for telling um, complex Asian American stories with nuance and depth. And that magazine was folding. um, So Eugene said, like, let's maybe make a film together. Um, And I think at any other time I would have said, no, that sounds crazy. I I don't know how to make a film. Um, But um, at this particular time, um, I had been thinking about the Choseli case a lot. Um, and that's because nine months earlier, I had attended the funeral for Chol Su, and um, to write an obituary for my magazine, um, but also to check on KW, who was in terrible anguish um, to have outlived Chol um, to whom he had become a father figure. Um, and um, at the funeral, there was just this um, emotion there that was beyond grief. Um, it, was, it was like a heaviness. And um, many of the activists who had come to Chol aid were there. Um, one of them said, in the end, he did more for us than we did for him, which was such a striking statement since um, I knew the movement was six years long. Um, and then at one point, K.W. Lee stood up, and um, he was clutching the Buddhist monk's walking stick Cholsu had carved for him. And he was a little angry. And he said, you know, why is the story still underground? You know, this landmark pan-Asian American social justice movement. Why is it not even taught in Asian American studies in American colleges and universities? Um, And so fast forward, you know, Eugene and I talking um, nine months later and, um, you know, I I spoke about the heaviness with him. um, And we just both knew that this story was um, too important to to allow to stay buried in history, that we actually felt a generational responsibility to tell it anew.
0: So, how, I mean, you, you, I've, I've seen the film and it's fantastic. And I certainly recommend everyone who has a chance get to see it. Um, you talk to a a lot of people. You, you show obviously archival video of a lot of folks. How difficult was it get, A, to get the people you, you, you spoke with to talk and, and B, were the materials like, like with, again, like Michelle, I hadn't heard about this before, uh, she brought this program to me. Um, and so were, was it difficult to find information on it or was this kind of one of those things where no one was looking and, you know, the videos were there, the articles were there, the interviews were there. What was it like getting this to pull it together?
3: Yeah. I mean, I really have to, we really have to credit KW Lee with opening up a lot of doors for us. He introduced us and connected us with a lot of the activists and the filmmakers, the journalists who were involved at the time. And, people were incredibly generous with their time and their experiences and with the contents of their closets, because almost to a person, um, it seemed like everybody kept the box of something or other related to the Chelsea Lee case, whether it was posters and these beautiful posters from the 1970s that really just sort of channel the artwork at the time or these petitions, what have you, or in some cases, you know, video recordings and audio recordings as well. And it kind of speaks to i think how seminal of a moment not only it was for 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 the people who were involved with the movement but kind of this shared and unspoken recognition that this was history that was worth preserving because you know this this, this footage was there this this material was there but they made this decision to to keep it and, and and to essentially turn it into archival footage like it wouldn't be archival footage for us today if it were not for what they had done. Um, I mean, a special shout has to go to Sandra Jin, who created the first sort of television documentary about the Chol Lee case in 1983. Now that case, uh, or that 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 program, ended with his release, but she sort of kept following the case and sort and filmed other interviews with Chol Lee over the years and um, shared them with us in this incredible act of trust and generosity that um, that really we're just eternally grateful for. And if it wasn't for Everything that all of these activists, filmmakers, journalists had done back then, if it wasn't for what they had put together, we truly would have no film to speak of
2: today.
1: Hearing um, Chelsea Lee's, you know, story makes me think about well, how many others are there? When we when we talk about racial injustice and then we include, you know, conversation about sloppy police work or police corruption, or even the injustice that we face in, you know, the criminal justice system. I'm not sure if say, for example, mainstream media would want to pick up a story that impacts the Asian American experience or Asian Americans in general. And so we'd love to hear, you know, from you, um, what was striking about Chelsea Lee's case and why This absolutely is not just a San Francisco Bay Area story, but an American story.
2: You're right. It wasn't um, picked up actually when this um, happened to Cholsuli, this wrongful conviction. And um, really, when you look at um, the uh, the evidence or lack of it um, that led to his conviction, it's quite striking. You know, there was actually no material evidence um, linking him to to this murder, and um, even the eyewitness descriptions. Of the actual killer um, did not match the physical description of Chosu Lee. You know, they described a much taller man who was clean shaven, and uh, Chosu Lee was, um, you know, shorter man and also um, had a mustache. In addition, you see in our film how, you know, when KW Lee, the journalist, investigates the case and he just looks at court records and sees how the arresting police officer on the stand during the murder trial points to Chulsoo Lee and says that Korean man, or no, I'm sorry, that Chinese man. And um, even Chulsoo's own defense attorney does not correct that for the record. Um, and it's almost unbelievable. Um, and that's what KW said, you know, um, as he says himself, it didn't take a genius um, to figure this out. Um, and looking through police records and court records, he could not believe um, the holes in the investigation, the judicial bias he witnessed um, and, um, yes, this kind of, um, profiling or, um, that, you know, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, they all look alike. Um, and so, um, and even doing the legwork in Chinatown, you know, people would tell him, you know, the Korean didn't do it because Chosu Lee sort of stood out in Chinatown as, as this lone Korean. Um, so even people in Chinatown knew that. Um, but it's, yeah, it speaks to, I think, um, the fact that, um, this actually happens all the time in, in our country. Unfortunately, um, we aren't used to seeing though this um, with Asian Americans, right? Um, it's not that it doesn't happen, but we don't we don't hear we don't see stories about them. Um, and so we do hope that with our film we can help people sort of um, connect the dots with um, what's happened in our past. Um, this kind of anti Asian racism that expresses itself not just in like microaggressions, but in anti-Asian violence or in, in cases like this of racial profiling that, you know, some destroyed a person's life, um, because it's so hard to undo that kind of damage of racism. Um, but connecting those dots between our past and what's happening now, um, you know, it, it feels like it's a moment where, um, people are starting to acknowledge, um, the racism against Asian Americans, you know, uh, you know, exists, you know, uh, as we're seeing, um, this, um, this horrible um rise in anti-asian violence um so we do we do feel like our film um does play a role in trying to make people more aware of that
0: maybe we should go back to the beginning if you will of chol, so, chol Su Lee um himself because his life from day one it sounds like you know i mean he was he was facing challenges he was he was it was almost tragedy after tragedy. Tell us, tell our, our viewers, because again, most of our viewers and listeners will not have known the story either. Um, sketch out his early life and and what led him to being accused to being in the play to being in a position, I guess, of being accused of this murder.
3: Yeah, so I mean, he he started off with almost every institutional disadvantage you could imagine. I mean, he was a child of war and grew up in a broken family during the Korean War. Um, I mean, happily that though he was raised by a loving aunt and uncle, but, um, he eventually did, uh, and his mother left for Korea or left Korea and married an American GI to, to come to America to try and seek opportunity. Um, he rejoined his mother at age 12, but once here, um, did not receive any of the kinds of support that an immigrant and particularly young immigrant would need. There was no language support. There was no transitional support for him, um, so he was bullied mercilessly and he was a smaller child too. So, so, so it was a difficult environment for him to get uh, to, to adjust to in America. And um, he went from school to school, eventually going to a school with mostly Chinese children um, with, um, uh, but, but he was, you know, of course, unable to communicate there either because he could speak Korean and not Chinese. Um, Eventually there was an altercation with another student that led to him being taken to the principal. Um, He had sort of, an outburst of anger at the principal. And he actually was uh, charged for battery for that incident. The, pol- the law enforcement was involved. And that sort of began his involvement in the school-to-prison pipeline with trips to juvenile hall and back, um, even sort of a stint in a, men- a mental institution where it was eventually discovered that it wasn't mental illness but uh, or, or, or schizophrenia, but it was the fact that he was a Korean speaker and no one had sort of recognized that. Um, until, until he had already been there and subjected to that treatment, and so he just sort of faced all of these obstacles. That I think, when you are at the intersection of race and class, in a way where everything breaks wrong, this is what can happen. And this is before he would spent even a day in prison for the nineteen seventy three uh, or, or uh, for the nineteen seventy three murder that he was eventually arrested for. So, so those are the circumstances that really kind of kind of sketched out uh, his life up to that point.
1: Julie, do you want to pick it up from there and, and talk about uh, that 1973 shooting and uh, what led to his arrest? And especially going back sure. to, you know, again, uh, the police officer's initial, I guess, response and, and, the, and the reason why they would have even thought that he was um, the alleged shooter.
2: Sure. So, um, yeah, the, there was a murder of a, a Chinatown gang leader named Yippee Tack that happened in June of 1973. Um, and it was witnessed by dozens of um, Chinatown residents, but it was only um, three white eyewitnesses, three, three out-of-town tourists who came forward and talked to police about whom they saw. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they, um, they did describe a man who was much taller, between 5'6 and 5'10, um, clean shaven, um, at, at the time they were interviewed. Um, by the time of the murder trial, that description had evolved, um, and and they were they identified Chosuli at the trial. Um, but what you know what put police on the tail of Chosuli in the first place um, was a gun accident that occurred where Chosuli had borrowed a gun and um, he was playing around with it one day and it 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 went off and um, the bullet shot into his wall. Um, the police came, filed an incident report. He wasn't arrested for it. Um, but when the police were looking into this Yippee Tack murder, um, they found that, you know, bu- that they found that um, gun accident report um, and it had happened just before the murder. Um, and so um, they did a ballistics test. Um, and unfortunately, the ballistics test um, was false, but they didn't know it at that time. And they um, they said it was a match that um, the bullet shot m- into um, Cholsu's wall was actually from the same murder was from the murder weapon. Um, That was actually proven false um, after the preliminary hearing, but before the first murder trial. Um, But even so, the the police and the DA um, just stuck with this case. Um, And it just goes to show you um, that our our criminal justice system does not self-correct, even after a mistake like that is discovered. Um, And so, yeah, uh, basically he went to trial. Um, Actually, his trial was... um, Held, um, in Sacramento um, and um, he had a court appointed attorney um, who, who didn't really investigate the case very very well um, and, he, and he was convicted by a jury and sentenced to life in prison at one of the most violent California prisons at the time which was ravaged by racial gang warfare um, and once again as he spent so much of his life, life as a loner he was once again alone you know like this lone Asian prison Prisoner um, at um, at dual vocational institution,
0: and that led to him actually killing someone, um, which is a whole other story. It would become a whole other case, but obviously is connected to this happening in a place he shouldn't have been in anyway. Um, have we ever? Do do we know that what happened just from what he's told us, or? Were, did any, because what this, for the viewers who don't know what we're talking about, this involved an inter gang uh, conflict. He wasn't a member of either gang. He he actually was, he tried to be on good terms with both sides. And uh, the, like, I don't know if they said the name of the the gang, but it was a a white uh, Aryan gang or something like that. And uh, they decided, nope, this is, you know, they were going to go after him. Um, so, I mean, his his thing. He says it was it was self defense. Are we confident that that was the case?
2: Well, um, as as Ronko Yamada, um, the activist in our film, who actually befriended Chul Su before um, uh, his arrest for this murder, um, as she she says in our film, no matter what, like where the knife came from or. Um, she says what you had for breakfast that day, like the fact that Cholsu Lee was in prison in the first place for a murder he did not commit, and then um he is like confronted by this prison gang violence. Um, what is he supposed to do? You know, how how is he supposed to defend himself? There as as Cholsu also says, there's no place to run, you know, within the prison system. Like we're we're, we're and you can't you can't not stand up to this kind of um, confrontation. Um, Chol Su, we know from his memoirs that he wrote his prison memoirs. He tried very hard to negotiate the relationships in prison. Being the lone Asian, he wanted to try to get along with everyone. He said he was he, he had to be very motivated to actually diffuse potential conflicts and tension, so he could avoid things like this. Um, but you know, when when um, when a gang puts out a hit. On you, um, uh, and and brings you know um, this this man Morrison Needham um, from the Aryan Brotherhood, you know, uh, brings out prison-made knives uh, to that confrontation. Um, yeah, what what do you do? You you defend yourself. Um, and even though this man was much larger than Chol Su Lee, by the way, um, um, Chol Su was I think he was faster, you know, and and he he knew what was um, going to happen to him. Um, so yeah, I think, um, we, who, people, um, could, could speculate all they want about like, um, did he, did he, um, did he have his own prison made knives? Was he ready, you know, for this kind of confrontation? But, um, I think we have to remember what Ronko Yamada said, you know, if you're put in that kind of situation, what choice do you have?
1: I'm glad you brought up his memoir and, um, you know, because the way that the documentary is made is you have uh, someone narrate, right, in the documentary, which makes it sound like uh, is Su Lee himself telling the story of his life. Tell us why you decided to put it in this way and then, you know, finding the right voice, the right voice of Chosu Lee that many of us actually don't know.
2: Yeah, we... we um we really wanted to make sure that um, Lee had agency in our film, that he could tell his own story on his own terms. Um, and so, yeah, we actually, um, Eugene and I had sort of a hard time in terms of, um, for many years, feeling like um, we weren't quite doing justice to Chosu Lee's voice as much as we were immersing ourselves in all his words, all his interviews, his letters, everything he left behind um, feeling like we're not quite getting to the heart of him. Um, and so it was really, um, the incredible discovery, um, of our producer, Sue Kim, finding our narrator, Sebastian Yoon. Um, and after he joined our team, it felt like everything fell into place. Um, you know, Sue, uh, had, had seen Sebastian speaking at an event for another documentary called college behind bars. And that, um, documentary followed, incarcerated men and women as they're allowed to take college courses and earn their degrees from prison. And Sebastian was one of the people they followed. Uh, he had been released um, from prison in 2019. And so that's why he was at um, that event talking about that film. Um, and Sue said when she saw him speak, she was just so moved by um, his honesty, his openness, his genuineness. And there was some quality about him that reminded her of Suley. Maybe it was that innate friendliness that K.W. Lee talks about in our film. Um, and so she just felt instinctively he could be the voice of Su Lee. Um, so she told Eugene and me about him. And um, we watched the documentary series. We were equally blown away by him. Um, and so we reached out and... Um, he was quite surprised to know that an Asian American team was working on a film about a formerly incarcerated Korean American, um, um, but you know, pleasantly so. And um, he he agreed to to just join us um, after watching a rough cut of the film. He said the story of Cholsuli resonated quite deeply with him and um, he could relate to him. Um, and he actually collaborated with us on the script for what Su Lee says in the film. He read his memoirs, he, he looked at his interviews, um, and, and actually Sebastian said um, he, he actually felt this strong obligation to Su because he's no longer with us, um, to make sure he spoke up for him, um, to make sure that when audiences saw this film, they wouldn't be so quick to judge Su for failing a community, for not delivering um, sort of the fairy tale ending that maybe this movement um, wanted um, for him after his release. Um, he wanted people to have some kind of empathy for Su. And so Sebastian really um, took it upon himself to really dig deep um, and even revisit his own trauma of incarceration um, to try to bring out um, the, 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 the emotion and, and the feelings of what Cholsu Lee endured while in prison Um, he emphasized to Eugene and me that it wasn't just prison violence Chol Su confronted, but it was the depression, the loneliness, the isolation. And as you can see in our film, those are aspects and scenes that um, are are very key in our film um, to to try to really um, flesh out um, what happens with incarceration. And so um, Sebastian just does a remarkable job um, of also just narrating. and, And we feel like um, his voice, really, you can feel that lived experience as well.
0: You, you've mentioned a couple, obviously, already now, uh, K.W. Lee and, and his role. Um, tell us how he became involved and, and obviously, what kind of happened as a result of his uh, writing about this. But then I also have a, another qu- related question, which is, if K.W. Lee had not come along and taken an interest in this, what do you think would have happened?
3: Uh, I mean, <clears throat> you know, more than, I mean, more than one person told us that KW Lee's stories launched the movement. I mean, he, he initially became involved. He told us because, um, I mean, he read a, a newspaper brief about Chol Lee, saw him, saw the name and, and knew immediately that it was a Korean name. Chol it, it's one of the most common Korean names you can have. He actually had a nephew named Chol and it's even used in children's books. It's kind of, it's kind of that common. And, so, KW proceeded to, to to start an investigation on his own, on his own time, um, for six months, driving from Sacramento to San Francisco to, to do this investigation and just to sort of, uncover cover all the things that that the film explores and that and that Julie's mentioned already. And the interesting thing about Chelsea's case is that at the time, at least, um, you know, Chelsea spent four years in prison before KW Lee's stories came out. And his case did not immediately become a cause célèbre; Like it was not immediately seen as a political case. So once KW's stories came out, it, it accomplished a couple of things. One, um, it humanized him, of course, and told uh, of, of everything that he'd been through just as an individual and all that he had faced in terms of the, the institutional racism, and the barriers that he had in his life. But secondly, it, um, it politicized the case. It turned his story into one that, to activists and people at the time could be seen as a political case. I mean, you know, back then prison liberation movement, a lot of conversation about the carceral state was really quite at the forefront of what was going on. And a lot of the younger activists in particular, um, sort of a lot of these third generation Asian American activists were very inspired by the civil rights movement, the black power movement, a lot of what was going on. And so there was this connection that they could make from Cheol Su's case to a lot of these issues that were hot button issues at the time, but it was in their own community. It was for an Asian American, and and and, and we were told, um, you know, Jeff Adachi, um, the you know who, who sadly passed away before we were able to to complete the film, but he told us that, you know, this was a, a like a, a cause that they could all get behind, you know, as Asian Americans, and you know, it's 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 and that's sort of what led. And that's kind of what launched the movement, that union between them and a lot of these first-generation immigrants who, in their own lived lived experiences, had experienced a lot of what Cheol had faced. and Which itself is quite extraordinary, of course, because a lot of them were sort of more conservative, church-going elders, Korean immigrants, who might not necessarily seem like the most natural fit with third-generation Asian American radicals. But they found common cause in this case. And I mean it's difficult to really conjecture kind of what would have happened if KW hadn't come along. I think it's um I mean I think for us it, it's more important to recognize that he did and that there was this moment where, you know, we, we use this line in an early fundraising trailer where uh where KW talked about how stars aligned. And 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 this was certainly a moment where all of these factors really came together to allow this this incredible moment in history occur. I'll add on, you know, question
1: to that. Um just to just- Stay on that topic. I mean, I was thinking about right, like who believes you when you are powerless? When you, as you know, Chelsea Lee had felt like very lonely. Like who out there is going to believe you? And then here comes um, the community, right? A community, a, a journalist, uh, a public defender, and and a, a defense committee, and strangers. Then uh, all of a sudden. And so I wanted to get both of your thoughts on right, the importance of uh, the Asian American community and why it's so it matters that we are judges, we are lawyers, we are journalists, we're filmmakers, and that we tell stories.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, as we've mentioned before, uh, it was not until four years into um, Cholsu's sentence um, when KW stumbled upon this story and, and started writing about it and a movement formed um, but what happened in those four years, uh, you know, the San Francisco newspapers and reporters had heard about this case. Why wasn't it picked up? Right. Um, and and there are apparently um, some uh, a few activists that were trying to reach um, the reporters at the San Francisco papers to try to see if they would look into this case, saying, you know, this this guy d- didn't do this. Um, we should also mention um, Ronko Yamada. Um, you know, before there was even a movement, she tried on her own as Cholsu's friend to find defense attorneys to take on Cholsu's case because she actually knew he was at serious risk of being railroaded and convicted of this. Um, but, she, you know, she didn't have enough money to pay them. And she said even progressive attorneys, you know, cause minded attorneys, would not take the case because they thought it wasn't political enough. Um, and so yeah, it it is important. I mean, when you think about KW Lee, he actually said, you know, um, this was the first story um where it involved a Korean immigrant like himself. Um uh and uh in the past, you know, KW had, had led such a um storied career as an, as a reporter, working at newspapers in the South, even as a very pioneering um Korean immigrant journalist. Um, and, um, you know, he, he covered the civil rights movement, um, Jim Crow South. Um, he embedded himself with, um, poor families in, in, um, Appalachia, West Virginia, um, before coming to the Sacramento paper, um, and covering stories there and was really writing mostly exposes. But it, when, when he came upon the Chelsea Lee case, the first time he got to, um, write about a Korean immigrant, um, as he says in the film, he felt that kind of telepathy you know, and, and that kind of connection to him. And I think, um, you know, he told us actually that in a way, Cholsu awakened his own latent Korean identity. Um, and so, yeah, I think it does speak, um, to that kind of, um, uh, kind of identification you can have with, with the subject that gives you, um, deeper insight, um, that, um, also, um, you can provide um, more context and historical context, personal context um, for the story. And um, when you think about the um, the two stories, the two front page stories K. W. Lee wrote initially about the case, the second, um, you know, poked holes in in the police and DA's investigation and case. But the first story, um, as Eugene mentioned earlier, really humanized Cholsuli. You know, it made him seem like um, this person. Who could be your brother, your son, your grandson. Um, and that's why the story had the power to launch a movement um, because uh, K.W. Kw Lee had that perspective and lens and could tell the story in that way, um, in that kind of affecting way that could make people connect to Chosu Lee on this human level. And, and also I think his story gave voice to a lot of um, Asian Americans and including Korean immigrants who just felt that the sting of, um, of racism or being unwelcome in this country um, and, and, and KW stories about Su, I think gave them um, that kind of connection and that outlet. Um, and so, you know, it, it touched something in them um, that they would be willing um, to, to dedicate themselves to a stranger for six years to free him.
0: It was very impressive watching the, uh, the scenes with, with his supporters you know people who really didn't know him but knew his story and maybe had, had talked with him or certainly talked with his attorneys um but their their enthusiasm for him and and for his case even as you know the, the, the there's a the, the scene in there where the we're seeing the transcript i guess of what the this judge is saying so i think this was in his was it his retrial uh, his initial retrial de- or the- was it the
2: death penalty? Maybe the death penalty trial with, for the prison yard murder case. Mm-hmm. Talking
3: about the racial makeup of the jury, is so, that yeah? And the yeah. judges
0: is, is like, well, I, I just see a bunch of Asian faces there, or something like that. Um, it, it, I mean, it, they they were also up against um, clearly a, some some you know, just racial structures that that was set up against them, um, but. So briefly because we could we could go through the the movie minute by minute and we want people to see the movie but take us to then that trial and and what happened and 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 uh his eventual freedom or the first freedom I guess we can call it.
3: Well um his, I mean, well, I, I'll, I'll first speak like again to the power of those ar- that archival imagery, um, and this kind of connects to Michelle's previous question, just about how incredible those images are, and how I think, especially for Asian Americans, we're just so hungry for those kinds of images, um, just to see these images of strength and resistance rather than a victimhood. I think is just something that um, can be tremendously inspiring to people today. But um, but yeah, that, the the moment you're talking about was was sort of the the, the trial for. The prison yard killing. Eventually, they were able to get a retrial for the original Chinatown killing. At which point, they were able to they had raised enough money to hire uh, these incredible defense lawyers. I mean, some of your listeners maybe may, may know their names because they're quite well known in the Bay Area: Tony Sarah and Stuart Hanlon, who are both just, just extraordinarily, uncommonly gifted litigators and, and 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 defense attorneys. And they were able to really poke holes in a lot of what the original evidence had been that had convicted Chelsea of some of the stuff that Julie mentioned earlier. And, and they were eventually able to, uh, I mean, they were eventually able to procure his freedom. I mean, importantly um, they were able to find an Asian American, a Chinese American witness from the neighborhood who was willing to take the stand. And I think, you know, it, it, it bears mention that, um, you know, at the time of the original Chinatown killing, it was a time of tremendous violence in Chinatown Um, there was a a youth gang war essentially going on. There had been about a dozen unsolved murders at the time. And in that situation, there's also a way to connect it to so many other situations that you see in communities of color today, where you do have, again, race and class working in this way. If it's a violent situation, it can lead to over-policing. It can lead to sort of these kinds of conclusions. And I think some of that affected the situation in terms of Chelsea's original conviction and, you know, Tony, Sarah, uh, Stuart Hamlin, as well as you know members of the defense committee who have, who who joined as young lawyers, Asian Americans, including we should mention Ronko Yamato, who had comp- who had decided to go to law school to try and work on cases like Tulsu's, and by this point had completed law school and joined as a defense attorney. Um, his legal team, which which is is just incredibly inspiring <laughs> of a story. Every time I I, I think about it, like it, it's just I mean it, it's amazing her commitment to to sort of helping to right this wrong. Um, but they were eventually able to overturn that 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 murder conviction and um, through a series of legal circumstances related to the prison killing, get him out on bail. Um, I, I should mention that, and we don't get into this in the film, but he had to get out on bail for the prison killing for the prison that, that that we were talking about earlier against the white supremacist members of the defense committee put their own property up um, as property bonds to be able to make that bail. And even though the amount did not quite get to the number that, that the bail was set at, the judge was impressed enough to be, to, 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 to grant bail nonetheless. And so, again, it just speaks to kind of some of the things we've been talking about, just the incredible depth of commitment and, and empathy and connection that people had to the movement and the sense that they were all in this together to right this wrong.
1: I know we talked about, you know, timing, how long it took to get this film to where it's at today. It's about to be released uh, tomorrow at the Roxy. I hope you all go see it. I think everybody needs to see it. But what I wanted to say was I think the timing is impeccable. And the reason why I say that is because we are starting to have these very honest conversations about wedges being driven within our communities in, and what, you know, we have these, the impact of COVID-19, the scapegoating of Asians, the blaming of, you know, the pandemic and uh, this idea that I, I feel like we have to redefine, you know, who Asians are. And the story of Chosu Lee is a story of so many, Asians that get left behind or get silenced, which is, you know, we have, it's incredibly challenging, it's horrible, uh, as far as the lack of support, and then the failure of systems, as Eugene had mentioned. And so the film really also shows, you know, what happens to a person, an Asian person, an Asian immigrant. Uh, going through, you know, the experiences, the lived experience of America, and then having to go through the criminal justice system. What happens to you after that? What do you, What do people think? Do you think we get, you know, shiny jobs and life goes on and we become celebrities and rock stars? No, uh, life is very challenging. That's what I appreciate about the film. I think everyone needs to see this American experience. Um, I'd love for both of you to add.
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I think too, what we also want to emphasize with this film is um, look at how Asian Americans responded to this injustice. And we hope people can take tremendous inspiration um, from this very unusual combination of people who found solidarity with each other um and united around Chelsea Lee's cause. Um, you're talking about first generation Korean immigrants, including church going grandmothers who are politically conservative, uniting with um young Asian American college-age activists, radicals who who self-identified as communists. Um and so that is um, such a striking and almost mythical type of movement that you almost have to see and hear to believe in our film, um, just, just to know that it actually happened. This is the truth that we're telling. Um, to overturn two murder convictions in the American criminal justice system, that's really um, almost, that, that is doing the impossible, as Ronko Yamada says in our film. Um, and yet Asian Americans did that um, at a time when our community had very little political power. Um, I think it's also just, um, it brings tears to my eyes because when you look at this, um, here was this poor Korean immigrant street kid, not a model minority. He wasn't an undergrad at Berkeley. You know, Um, he was living on the margins, um, dropped out from high school. Um, You know, uh, here he was and the criminal justice system deemed him disposable. But then a group of people... You know, thanks to this journalist, K.W. Lee, looked upon him and actually said, "No, you know, you actually are worthy of our time, attention, love, and care, and and we're going to devote, you know, all our efforts to you, um, to free you, um, and try to right this wrong." And so I think that's the aspect of this story um, that I, we can actually take um, inspiration from and and draw lessons from today um, in terms of like, you know, what are our roles individually uh, or collectively to create a more just society. Um, and, you know, we also wanna challenge our own Asian American community, like um, the issues um, that we embrace, you know? And, and we, we need to think about issues like policing and communities of color, um, like incarceration, like reentry, Criminal justice reform should be one of our issues as well. Um, and so that is something that, you know, we hope our film um, can help um, put us in that history so it arms us with that kind of consciousness.
3: And uh, there's something about this story that, um, I mean, someone else had put it this way, and I thought it was just so eloquent. It's not just about um, um, preserving history, but restoring history. It's an act of restoration of, of what it, we have as our history. And um, it, it it a little bit begs the question of why this history wasn't better known, you know, compared to other cases within the Asian American community. And um, Chelsea Lee himself had some ideas about this, about sort of, you know, his case being a little bit you know, not as clean as other cases like the Vincent Chin case, for example, um, which is which is much better known than than this case. But um, but it it sort of just asks this question of what we expect of our heroes and and, and whether we need our heroes to be perfect f- for us to celebrate them. Because if we sort of held that standard, then this, maybe this history might have stayed forgotten. And 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 I think for us it was just our mission to not allow that to happen this history is just too important and this this this, this moment is just too incredible and so as we've screened the film what's been really remarkable is uh, the depth of connection that audiences have to Chelsea. lee and sort of this this binary that had been that was perhaps you know that's perhaps out there of okay this incredible movement but chelsu struggled afterwards is not really the right one to think about at all. And maybe is isn't even an opposition at all. Instead, um, what we've seen is that there's been people, there's been a way that people have responded to the movement and really celebrated that history, but also seen Chelsea as a human being and understood that they don't, that, that, that it's not about judging him by his mistakes, but by, by everything he'd been through and how much he would fought to get through it. And so we're hoping that our film can really be not just a celebration of that moment of resistance, but of Chelsea's resilience as well. And of just seeing him and all of us as, 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 fully human.
0: Considering really everything he went through in his life, but especially thinking about kind of his post, post, it's hard to say post-incarceration, because he did go back to prison for uh, uh, 18 months, I guess around the nineteen ninety somewhere in there, but after his after the his original conviction was overturned and the the the, the prison yard killing uh, conviction was was overturned on appeal do i have that correct uh, so anyway that part of his life um i'm just kind of wondering and you you have great clips of him talking times when he sounds optimistic times when he really sounds bitter do you think he was happy at any point with his life, I don't mean just like a momentary happiness, you're telling a joke, but at any point kind of felt any satisfaction or or, or just kind of peace with himself?
2: Um, you know, what Ronko Yamada said was that um, she felt like, um, well, she said this actually at the funeral, um, she wished he had more happiness in his life, um, but that she did know that the happiness he did have um, many of those moments were spent with um, the people from the Defense Committee, um, and these are the, the the select activists actually who decided to stick by his side even after his post release troubles. Um, and and you know what what Eugene and I discovered after working on this film for so long was really when you think about when his own mother was um, in a way abandoning him after that prison yard murder case. Um, that's when KW entered his life. That's when this movement of people entered his life. And we realized they became sort of a surrogate family for him. You know, we all long for family and home and unconditional love. And um, in a way they became like his family. And so um, the fact that he spent the last act of his life um, trying to honor them by speaking publicly about the movement Um, and, 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 um, not showing bitterness and saying like, you put this incredible burden on me as a movement and as a symbol, and it was too much for me. Um, certainly he felt that, um, and that was part of his truth. I mean, he did express that. Um, but we think he came to a place, uh, where he still wanted to give back. He still understood that what these people did for him was something worth celebrating and was something actually that could be, um, that should, that people should know about um, because it could inspire um, current and future generations um, to, to mobilize around causes like his. Um, And so he knew how important that was. And, and he, you know, I think what happened was it's just, it's not only hard to undo the damage racism can do, but it's also hard to undo the just um, all the scars um, and demons that he had just from his very childhood. Um, And so that was so hard to overcome. And so, um, you know, it it sounds lofty, but we actually hope our film helps to give Chelsea Lee peace. And, um, you know, I spoke about the heaviness in the funeral that, that sort of was the impetus to make this film and when we think back now, um, it feels like Chol Lee wasn't at peace, you know, because he he probably knew that when he left this world um, and didn't get a chance to say goodbye to a lot of people, um, that they're carrying an ache for him, you know, um, that that there's this pain, and and in fact, activists have told us like when they would think about Chol Su Lee. Even as proud as they are about the movement, they feel like they feel a little bit heaviness and and this ache because his life um, was so hard. Um, But it's interesting that after watching the film, several told us that they feel like a lightness now or they feel at peace. Um, And so when they think about him, um, you know, they they can they can they can actually have um, sort of that sense of um, closure and peace and, and we do feel like even um, the act of making this film and having them talk and reflect on what happened, um, they were allowed to go on, on this cathartic journey. Um, and so, um, yeah, Chosu Lee, you, you know, um, it's hard to know how he felt at the end of his life. Um, we, we would hope he'd have had peace. But, but again, we, we hope that the film actually um, also helps give him that kind of peace.
1: Who has seen the film and what has been their response to it?
2: Yeah, many of the activists have seen it. Yeah, including KW, um, uh, and, and they've been, they've been amazing. They've been um, they've been tremendously uh, supportive. Um, I think you know everybody was wondering when the film would get finished. <laughs> Um, if the film would get finished and what it would turn out like. Um, And so they seem like they were pleasantly surprised and they were just, um, we've been very lucky. They've embraced the film uh, so, so powerfully. Um, And KW Lee said the most amazing thing, you know, he, he, he watched it. And he said, at last, you know, Chosu Lee is free.
1: I wanted to add to that. I had read somewhere though that you also are getting inquiries from, Professors and scholars who want uh, to add this to their teachings, or even you know their lectures, and wanting to talk about the case.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I yeah we we have been, and I think that's just been such an important goal for us um, from the very beginning to really share this history with. Asian-Americans of all generations, including the younger generations, and to really have that educational outreach because this is our history. And I think just over the course of seeing this film out in the world, we just see vividly what happens when people can reconnect to their history. They feel more rooted. They feel more grounded. They feel more connected, not just to themselves and as, as, as Americans, but to each other as well. Um, and, and just historically, it, it's sort of this fascinating point because um, it came not long after the term Asian-American was invented um, to replace the old term oriental and to to sort of seek sort you of know, a self defining pan ethnic political kind of organizing vehicle for that for 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 that to refer to and and this was a moment that reflects that you know you have these unlikely sort of solidarities that Julie was talking about earlier between all the all the groups of people who were involved, and it just connects so Deeply with today, as kind of Michelle, you were talking about, as we all sort of are defining what Asian America is, because just by all of us being here, we're all, with everything that we do, we are defining what Asian America is. And to see this moment where that act of defining Asian America meant that they sparked this movement and got this man off of death row. um, There's just a power to it that, um, that I think can't be denied we're just so thrilled and humbled just to be able to be in this position to share the film as, as we have been able to get have the opportunity to do
0: now as michelle mentioned it's opening tomorrow here in san francisco is it opening elsewhere as well or what i'm getting at is how can our audience here of this program find out about it where can they see it or where can they where can they get a list of upcoming uh premieres
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, tomorrow, um, it opens in San Francisco theatrically at the Roxy Theatre. Um, and then um, next Friday on August 26, it opens theatrically in Los Angeles at the Lamely Royale um, in LA. And um, it's also going to eventually be on MUBI, our distributor streaming um, platform, um, as well as on PBS's Independent Lens. And so we don't have dates yet, but we will keep you posted if you follow us on fcsl underscore film um and also you could go to um mubi's website mubi.com slash free chelsea lee one word um and you can find um listings and links there
1: and i i know you know this is not a question that you probably want to answer but what's next
2: (laughs) No, you know we, it's funny. It's just because um, I often uh, liken it to um, when you've had your first child, and um, and you're exhausted. You're 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 gleefully happy, right, for um, having given birth to this this beautiful um, child. But then um, you're so tired, and people are asking, when are you gonna have your second? You know. <laughs> so I think Eugene and I have a bit of that feeling. Um, we're we're still actually working quite hard to actively promote this film because it was quite an accomplishment to finish it. And we have to credit our entire team, by the way, our, our producers, Sue Kim, Jean Chen, and Sona Jo, um, uh, and so many others on our team um, for, for making this possible. But uh, yeah, there, there's, so much, there's so much involved to try to make sure people see the film now. Um, and so our, our efforts are really um, dedicated toward making sure that it gets out into the world as much as possible.
0: And was it mostly finished by the time the pandemic hit or were you still doing post-production or were you still gathering materials? I mean, what role, I mean, because we've heard, you know, we've talked with people who are either writing books or working on films and strangely enough, the pandemic gave them a time to focus very much on their project. Others that completely, you know, if it was something where they were having to travel a lot, it completely um, threw a wrench into, into the things. So what role did it play with this film?
3: yeah it um it it made us alter our plans <laughs> we had planned on filming more we had planned on filming more interviews as well as other sorts of uh, impressionistic material but um but of course especially since so many of the people who were involved with the movement were older i mean we we just couldn't take that risk of of, of exposing anybody to anything um that could potentially be dangerous so we hungered down, and we and we in our, and with our team, we decided that we just needed to sort of look inwards into what we had already, which was already kind of this this community archive, this sort of underground archive that we discovered, and and really embraced that as our identity um, for the film. Uh, and we also brought on an incredible archival producer named Brian Becker, who who really helped flesh out visually like a lot of the language of the film. But but yeah, by by, by doing that, I think we we're able to, with our team, just really create something that's more immersive and more, I think, like transporting to that time, like it, it was, was the hope. And so, so, so just using that archival footage and really leaning into that and really understanding some of the things we've talked about before, like just how important it is for us to see archival imagery of ourselves as Asian Americans, because um, we've seen so little of it in the past. And, and, and just the power that that can have to really make us feel... Again, rooted to fight against things like the, the the perpetual foreigner stereotype, this idea that we're all just came here. Like this archival footage, it, it, like just strikes a direct blow against that. Um, it shows that we've been here. It shows that we're part of this history. So, so yeah, so that it, so so the pandemic allowed us to really just sort of embrace that identity for ourselves in the film.
1: Last question as we wind down here, and thank you so much for spending the hour with us and for this film, this very important film that showcases, you know, big part of our community as well as our, our history. Uh, but this question is about you, you know, one thing that you do to just completely let go, decompress and take care of yourself. Interesting.
2: Um, yeah. I, I try to go for walks. Uh, when I can um, and uh, yeah that's that's actually something I, I learned as um, a cancer survivor um, to to go for those, those walks and um, it's a good exercise but also um, you need that uh, that moment to yourself to um, to reflect and to recharge
3: there are so many answers some of them are bad habits and some of them are good habits that I could respond to that with but um, I think the thing that today has been defined by in terms of those moments is when my four-year-old daughter comes up and and grabs my hand away from the mouse and, like, drags me away from the desk to let her do that um, and to just connect with family and, 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 and just be present in that way and to let, let the inbox just kind of continue to collate material in the background Without my having to to monitor it,
1: John. Do you have a last question?
3: I'm not
0: going to top that. I think that was that was good for all of us okay. to think about.
1: Eugene, Julie, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and for the fr- for the film Free Chelsu Lee. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, go check out the film. It premier- premieres tomorrow at the Roxy. And if you're not and you're interested in finding out more, you can go to FCSL Dash Film com. And thank you to all of you who are joining us. John, you've got the last words.
0: Okay, well, thank you again to our special guests on today's program. Last but not least, thanks to all of you for watching or listening to this program. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.